So, hello. Um, welcome to Bible with Bill. Uh, this is an idea that Alice and I have been kicking around for a little while, the idea of doing an occasional podcast on Bible subjects. Um, so it's this is the first one. It's a bit of an experiment. We're testing the technology to see if it'll work. Um, so we're sitting in Charlie's office in Hope Chapel. I'm here with Chris and Alice. Um, and yeah, this is the first one. So um, what I'm going to do is read a passage and it's coming up to Easter. So this is part of the, the Easter story. Um, but I think it's a bit of a neglected part of the Easter story. It's um, maybe the, the episode in Holy Week that we don't talk about so much. Um, and I think that's a shame. Uh, but first of all, I'm going to read it, read it. It's the clearing of the temple in Mark's gospel. So it's Mark 11, uh, beginning at verse 12. And it goes like this. Uh, the next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his, his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written? My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Um, I don't know how you feel about this passage, um, but it's one that's been interpreted in all sorts of different ways over the years. Um, I saw on Twitter um, the other day, bizarrely for Twitter, an argument about Marxism and capitalism, because uh, you never get those on Twitter. Uh, but this, this person was arguing uh, in this tweet that Jesus would have been a Marxist. Um, and his main piece of evidence for this, for this assertion that Jesus was a Marxist was this passage, because clearly the thing that had got Jesus angry was capitalism going on in the temple courts. And so he wanted to destroy the capitalism that was taking place under his nose. Um, Eleanor, my daughter uh, in RS, she's, um, she's looking at uh, war and peace and uh, religious approaches to, to war. Um, and someone in her class was arguing that, um, uh, that Jesus was in favor of war because he was in favor of violence. And exhibit A in this argument that Jesus was in, not just in favor of violence, but used violence was this passage. Um, I think my favorite example is Bertrand Russell, the uh, English or rather Welsh, um, uh, philosopher and mathematician of the 20th century. He died in 1970. Um, but in 1957, he wrote this book called Why I Am Not a Christian. He was a very famous atheist. And, uh, and this passage 
is exhibit A in his argument. And, and, and writing about this passage, about the, the, fig, the cursing of the fig tree and the clearing of the temple, Russell says, and there's a certain tone of voice you have to say this in, I cannot myself feel that either in the matter of wisdom or in the matter of virtue, Christ stands quite as high as some other people known to history. Um, thanks, Bertrand. Um, but, but his argument seems to be that in this passage, we get a glimpse of the real Jesus. It's in this passage that the mask slips. And what you see is Jesus kind of in a red mist. You know, he's lashing out in anger at this innocent fig tree because he's not bearing any figs. And he's, he's lashing out at these people uh, in, the, in the temple courts. And therefore, Jesus isn't the, uh, the, the person we should esteem as much as Christians say. He's just another man like, like all of us, and we shouldn't worship him. That's Bertrand Russell's view. Um, but what about us as, as Christians? We, um, we may not agree with any of those interpretations. We may say, well, that's just lots of different people reading into the text their own personal beliefs and opinions. Um, but how do we address this passage? What do we feel about this passage? We may struggle to agree with any of these, the, the three interpretations that I, I gave you, but we still find it hard to understand this passage. It's hard to make sense of Jesus' behavior and it can make us quite uncomfortable. And I think that's why we tend to skip on to safer passages. We tend not to dwell here and, uh, and really listen to what's going on. Um, and I think that's a problem because think about where this event takes place. In Mark's gospel, it's right at the start of Holy Week. This is part of the Easter story. The afternoon before, Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem uh, on a donkey or a colt. Um, and, that, and that's Palm Sunday. And it's one of the things we celebrate. It's one of the, the great events of the, the Christian calendar is Palm Sunday. Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And that's, that happens the afternoon before this event of the clearing of the temple. But how much do we celebrate the clearing of the temple? You know, the way Mark positions the story suggests this is, this is really important, this is really significant. And yet, because we struggle to understand it, I think the, the huge risk is that we'll, we'll miss that significance. Um, the good news is, I think with a little bit of work, we can understand it and we can, um, and we can discover that it really is important and it really is something to be celebrated. Um, I was joking with, with Alice before that um, maybe uh, the day after Palm Sunday, we could have Clearing the Temple Monday and we could get the youth to just trash the church and graffiti the walls and turn over the furniture in order to celebrate this important event. I think it's something that we're gonna consider later on. Um, but seriously, I, I think this, this is a vital passage and it's one that I, I love now, and it's one that I really value. So what I'm gonna do uh, um, is, is lead you on a journey. Uh, so hopefully we, we can all end up uh, in the same place. Um, but what I'm, my, my plan is to look at five pieces of evidence passage, um, five pieces of evidence, and then draw some conclusions. I hope by the time we've, we've got to the end of the five pieces of evidence, the picture is becoming pretty clear. 
um, but we'll draw some conclusions at the end. So um, piece of evidence number one, here we go. Um, look at the verse before the where I started to read the passage. So this is uh, verse 11. I started to read from verse 12. Look at verse 11. Um, now this is, uh, so Mark says, Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. Now this is fascinating because it's, it's kind of, uh, a, a little uh, setting the scene detail, which Mark tends not to go in for. Mark's gospel is very stripped bare. He doesn't give much context. He doesn't kind of fill in the local detail, but he does here. He lets us know that having arrived in Jerusalem, the, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the crowd shouting, shouting Hosanna, that evening when all the rumpus had settled down a bit, Jesus goes to the temple courts and he wanders around and does nothing. Now, why does he tell us that? Because I think what he's saying is everything that happened the next day was planned and it was deliberate. Now, just think about it. Jesus wanders around the, the temple courts. He, he kind of cases the joint. He sees what's going on in the temple. And then he walks back to Bethany, which is a walk of at least an hour. Um, it's about three miles to walk back to Bethany. What's he doing on that walk as he as he reflects on what he's just seen in the temple? I think he's he's praying, he's reflecting, and he's planning. He's working out what he's going to do the next day. And so what what Mark is doing here is he's he's arguing against Bertrand Russell. Um, Jesus' actions when he's clearing the temple, that's not a fit of rage. He's not just, he's not losing control or lashing out. We're not seeing the emotions being stirred so much that he, he loses control. What we're seeing is Jesus doing something that he's planned. It's not vind vindictive fury, as Russell says. Um, it's deliberate, controlled action. That's piece of evidence number one. But that's just in the, the introduction. Um, we now move on to what I think is the central argument, the central piece of evidence or pieces of evidence. Because the fact is, while Jesus is clearing the temple, he explains while he's doing, why he's doing it. Words come out of his mouth and his words explain what he's doing. The trouble is, what would have been clear if you were um, in the first century, a first century Jew in particular, observing these actions and hearing these words, what would have been obvious in that situation is not obvious to people in the 21st century in Britain. Um, and, and so we need to do a bit of work to understand what his words mean. So what does he say? Um, if we look at the next slide, it says, um, the, the, this is what Jesus says. Is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, brackets, C, but you have made it a den of robbers, brackets, D. That's what Jesus said. I'm not sure whether he actually said the bracket C and bracket D, but those are the words he said. 
Why is it bracket C and brackets D? Well, look down to the bottom of the page in your Bibles and you will discover that references C and D are Isaiah 56 and Jeremiah 7. In other words, Jesus is quoting the Old Testament. If we want to understand why he's doing what he's doing as he's turning over the, the tables and interrupting the business of the people selling and exchanging money, we need to dig into the Old Testament and work out what those references would have meant to someone on the scene in the first century, in Jerusalem in the first century. Um, New Testament writers quote the Old Testament all the way through. Um, the, the New Testament writing are full of these references to the Old. The Old Testament was the scriptures for Jesus, for Paul, for the disciples. Um, and these, these Old Testament references are one of the most valuable tools when it comes to interpreting the New Testament. But they're just snippets, they're little signposts. And in order to understand how they provide the context and how they give the meaning, you need to do more than just read the words. You need to uh, look back at the references, at the, at the, um, the original um, writings that those little snippets refer to or are extracted from, because that will give you the meaning and give you the context. Um, what I used to do when I read the New Testament was I'd get to one of these Old Testament quotes and I'd say, oh, Old Testament doesn't really, doesn't really refer to me because I'm a Christian. I'm a New Testament person. These Old Testament bits, they're a bit hard to understand and they're not relevant to me anyway. And so what I'd do is I'd skip over them and get onto the stuff that's easier to understand. And that's the biggest mistake you can make because it's the Old Testament clues that help us to understand the New Testament passages. Uh, it's a bit like this. Let me give you an example. If I was to say, um, I think I've got a slide for this. If I was to say these five words, once more unto the breach, what would you think? What would you hear and what would you think? What would it mean to you? If you know Shakespeare, and if you know British history, then hearing five words once more unto the breach would instantly set you off on a train of thought. And you'd find yourself carrying on. You'd say, once more unto the breach, dear friends, once more, or fill the wall up with our English dead. And you'd think about Henry V, and you'd think about the siege of Harfleur, because that's where this speech comes from in Shakespeare's play. And you'd think about Shakespeare and the play and the plot of the play and how the siege of Harfleur is kind of the, near the start of the story. But what it is is a, a premonition of Agincourt and the, the triumphant victory at Agincourt. You might think about the story of Henry himself, how the kind of um, spoilt teenager that we meet in Henry the Fourth, Part One and Two, becomes the great leader in Henry the Fifth. We think about that part of the story. Uh, if you know about the history of England and France, and you think about how uh, English rugby fans today 
when they uh, France at Twickenham, they shout Agincourt, 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 and how that's still very real and live for lots of British people today. Um, those five words trigger off. They're, they're like the key into a whole room full of meaning. But if you don't know Shakespeare, and if you don't know English history, and you simply try and work out what once more unto the breach means, then it could mean anything. Which breach? Breach of what? Breach by who? Once more, are we going into the breach? Are we going up to the breach? Are we going to try and repair the breach? What's going on? And that's exactly how these little snippets of Old Testament work in the New Testament. They are not the, the information, but they're the key to the information. They're the signpost to the information. But what's automatic, if you're a, a Jewish reader or hearer in the first century, is not automatic for us. Because the Old Testament was their Shakespeare. It was their history. It really, really was. It was, was their poetry and it was their history. And so all of those echoes, all of that meaning was going around in their heads. And the New Testament writer just needed to use five words and it would trigger off that context. But we need to do the work. Um, so let's have a look at our quotes. First of all, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. What does that mean? What's the context? What's the situation? That's the, the tiny snippet. The bigger picture is a very fundamental vision, the Old Testament's vision for what the temple should be like. Um, because right from the start, as God spoke to Israel through the law and, it, and unveiled his plan that they would worship him in, in a, originally a tent, but then a temple, a house of God that he would inhabit with his presence. There were all sorts of rules and instructions about how they built this thing, how they designed it, the layout, the roles of the priests, etc., etc. But a key part of it, a key part of that vision for um, Israelite worship was that Jew and Gentile would worship side by side. Right from the start, look at this, um, this passage from Numbers. This is Numbers 15. So this is part of the law. This is given to them while they were, before they even entered the promised land. They were still trekking around the desert. And God says to them, for generations to come, whenever a foreigner or anyone else living among you presents a food offering as an aroma pleasing to the Lord, they must do exactly as you do. Listen to this. You and the foreigner shall be the same before the Lord. That was the picture that the law presents, this idea of um, Jew and Gentile, shoulder to shoulder, side by side, praying, worshipping, offering sacrifices in the temple. That's the original, the, the right at the heart of the vision for what the temple should look like, is this idea that it was a place where Gentiles could come and worship alongside Jews. Um, if you go to uh, 1 Kings, for example, um, where what had been the tent becomes the temple. Solomon finally becomes the king who builds a temple, a permanent house for God's presence to, to dwell in. 
in Jerusalem. And if you read about the inauguration of the, the temple in, in 1 Kings 8, um, Solomon prays. And a key part of his prayer is he prays for all the foreigners who will pray in, in his temple. And he prays to, to Yahweh and he says, Lord, hear the prayers of these foreigners who will come to this house and pray to your name, hear from heaven their prayers and answer them. So Solomon gets it. Solomon understands right at the inauguration of the temple that the role of the temple is to be a place where Jew and Gentile can, can pray and can worship shoulder to shoulder, side by side. And so this theme runs throughout the Old Testament. But the, the fullest um, picture of this, the fullest um, explanation of this is in third, the third part of Isaiah. In Isaiah 56, Isaiah, the, the third part of Isaiah is Isaiah looking to the future. Okay, it's after Israel has returned from exile and, and Israel and the temple are a bit of a mess. But Isaiah encouraged, he, uh, God speaks to the people through the prophet and he looks to the future and he has a vision of Israel restored and Israel's fulfilled in its role. And, and right at the heart of that, especially in Isaiah 56, is this vision of foreigners coming to Israel, coming to Jerusalem and worshipping side by side. Um, so this is the end, or this is part of Isaiah 56. Foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Sound familiar? Yeah, because that's the bit that Jesus quotes. So what Jesus is referring to is this is Isaiah's vision of foreigners being drawn to Jerusalem, being drawn to the temple, discovering Yahweh for themselves and praying and worshipping shoulder to shoulder with Jews. Um, that's the, the vision that Isaiah presents. Um, and it's the one that Jesus draws attention to as he's turning over the tables in the temple. Why? Well, when Jesus wanders around the temple courts the, the evening before, what does he find? Um, I've got some pictures of the temple. Um, so this is actually a, a model that was built by a Norfolk farmer called Alec Garrard. Uh, he, he retired from turkey farming and he spent 30 years building this incredible, large, detailed model of Herod's temple in a shed on his farm. Um, unfortunately, sadly, um, Alec has now died, but his, his model is still there. And so this is a very detailed model of Herod's temple. Um, and the key thing to understand about Herod's temple is th this is the second temple. Uh, Solomon's temple was destroyed during the exile. The Babylonians destroyed the, the temple. After the return from exile, it was rebuilt. But Herod the Great had massively um, rebuilt and extended um, this second temple. So the, the bit you see in the middle um, is pretty much similar to Solomon's temple. That was the bit that was rebuilt when they returned from, from exile. 
But round the outside, you'll see these huge, vast courtyards, like playing fields, all around the, the original design, the, the design that's laid out in the law for what the temple should be like. That's what you see in the middle. But round the outside is Herod the Great's additions, these huge courtyards. Um, now, that's not in the original text. That's not in the law. Uh, Herod wasn't obeying scripture when he massively extended uh, the courts. But it's those courts that became known as the court of the Gentiles. OK, when Jesus walked around here, this was a building project where the, the, the finishing touches were still being put to Herod the Great's project to build these great um, courts around the temple. And, and so the court of the Gentiles, where Jesus uh, turns over the tables and, and stops the, the money changing, that, that's this new bit that Herod's built around, around the outside. But it's called the court of the Gentiles. Why was it called the court of the Gentiles? Because Gentiles were welcome? No, because that's the only bit that Gentiles were allowed to, to be in in Jesus' day. In fact, if we zoom in a little bit and move on to the next uh, slide, you'll see this wall. There was a five foot high stone wall in the middle of the, these Herod's courtyards, um, and it was known as the Sorek. And the Sorek was the barrier beyond which a Gentile was not allowed to, um, not allowed to pass. Uh, the, the Jewish historian Josephus uh, knew this well, and he records what was written on plaques on this wall. And this is what Josephus says. Um, so these plaques on this wall, had, had, it was basically a sign saying, keep out. The message was, no foreigner may enter within the railing and enclosure that surround the temple. Anyone apprehended shall have himself to blame for his consequent death. <laughs> In other words, keep out on pain of death, foreigners. So how does that sit with God's original vision, with Isaiah's vision for what the temple should be like? By the time of Jesus, the message was foreigners keep out or we'll kill you. Um, in fact, this uh, archaeologists knew about uh, this, this wall and these plaques um, from, from Josephus's writings, but a couple of them have since been discovered in the 1870s. Um, a, an intact one was discovered, which said exactly these words, which is now in the uh, Istanbul Museum of Archaeology. And there's another one, which is in Jerusalem. Um, so that was what Jesus, that's part of what Jesus saw as he was casing the joint the evening before. So the foreigners, the Gentiles, were restricted to outside the wall, or what took place outside the wall. That was the place where um, anyone who uh, came to Jerusalem to make a sacrifice, that was where they bought the, the animals. Um, and it's also where they changed money in order to have an acceptable coinage to present a money offering to God. And the problem was, this was a vast industry. Josephus also tells us that in, in one Passover uh, period, 250,000 lambs were slaughtered. 
a quarter of a million lambs. This was a vast industrial sacrifice business. Now imagine the trade that's going on in these courts in order to allow that kind of industrial sacrifice racket business. Um, they would have been covered with a marketplace, basically. And so what the Jews were saying was, foreigners, you have to stay out in that bit. But any foreigner who wanted to come and pray in Jerusalem, in the temple, or at near the temple, in the bit they were allowed to, they were sharing that space with a marketplace. That's what it had become. And it's so far from the original vision. It was so far from God's original plan, which was to include foreigners with no distinction between the Israelites and the Gentiles. Shoulder to shoulder, the law said they should be included and allowed to present their sacrifices, to pray and worship shoulder to shoulder with Jews. Whereas in fact, what Jesus saw as he wandered around was the opposite. It was Gentiles keep out. Okay, but that's just the first of uh, our quotes. Um, the second one is, but you have made it a den of robbers. So Jesus saying is a composite. It's made up of two quotes from the Old Testament. A den of robbers. Where does that come from? It's Je Jeremiah 7. And it's, it's really worth reading in full, but we haven't got time now. Uh, so what I'll do is I'll summarize. If you look up Jeremiah 7, the context of Jeremiah 7 is Jeremiah the prophet comes to Jerusalem. He stands in the temple and announces its destruction. Jeremiah declares God's judgment and the destruction of the temple in Jeremiah 7. And that's what this little snippet is pointing to. Um, we get confused by the bit that says a den of robbers. And we think that Jesus is somehow criticizing the, the practices as though those uh, trading uh, somehow trading fraudulently. You know, are they charging too much? Is it dodgy goods? Um, is Jesus criticizing the, the nature of the trade, that it's somehow in, um, a kind of... Um, uh, theft or fraud. But that I think that's completely missing the point, because if you read Jeremiah 7, what Jeremiah is saying when he calls it a den of robbers is he's using it as a metaphor. What he's saying is Israel treats the, temper, treats the temple like robbers treat their den. So robbers, bandits, go out from their, from their lair, from their den, uh, during the day, and they go out and they do unspeakable things. They rob people, they, they beat people up, but then they return to their den and they say, we'll be safe here. This is our safe place where no one can get us. And what Jeremiah says, if you follow his argument in, in Jeremiah 7, is that's exactly how Israel is treating the temple. Uh, Israel, um, particularly the, those in authority in Israel, are doing unspeakable things, but then they say, but we'll be all right because we've got the temple. Which, and because we've got the temple, which is God's house, we'll be safe. No one can, can touch us here. We're like robbers returning to our den. And what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 7 is, you're idiots. 
Um, you're treating it like you're safe. But, and then the rest of Jeremiah's argument is, look at Shiloh. And you need to know what Shiloh is. Well, Shiloh was the place where Israel first set, set up the tent of the tabernacle. Um, and Jeremiah is saying that was the place of worship. That was God's house for a while. Now go and look at Shiloh. And what do you see there? And clearly at that time, Shiloh had been destroyed. The, the, the village, the small town had been completely destroyed and overrun. And you couldn't even find the place where the tabernacle had originally, the, the tent had originally been pitched. And so Jeremiah's argument is kind of God is perfectly capable of destroying his house of worship. Um, he's done it once. Look, at, go to Shiloh and look at Shiloh. If you think it can't happen again, then you're you're treating you're treating it like robbers treat their den. They think they're safe, but they're not. Forty years after Jeremiah prophesied this, stood in the temple and warned them of God's judgment, warned them that they weren't safe in the temple, that God was going to judge them and destroy the temple and send them into exile, the Babylonians steamed in and did exactly what Jeremiah prophesied. The temple was destroyed. Now, think about this. Jesus stands in the temple courts in about AD 30 and quotes Jeremiah. What happens about 40 years later? The Romans steam in. There's the... Um, the war between Rome and, and the Jews, the Jewish-Roman wars from about AD 67. By AD 70, the temple had been completely destroyed. See a pattern? So what is Jesus doing as he quotes Jeremiah? As he stands in the temple and quotes Jeremiah standing in the temple and warning of judgment. I think what he's doing is he's saying it's going to happen again. God is judging. God is judging this situation that I see as I wander around and look at what's actually happening in this place. And what he's doing is he's linking the two. He's saying, because of the way you treat foreigners in this place where God wants foreigners to be included, this temple is going to be judged just like Solomon's temple was judged, just like the, the tent at Shiloh. I think, do you see a pattern? Is it beginning to make sense? Um, is that all right, Chris and Alice? Are we, are we doing okay? Okay, good. Sorry, I just needed to check with my the, the audience who are here on the day. Um, so two more pieces of evidence. We've looked at the fact he cased the joint the night before. We've looked at the Isaiah passage and the Jeremiah passage. What about the fig tree? I mean, this is the bit that for most people, this makes no sense at all. Um, it's worth pointing out how Mark deliberately frames the story of the clearing of the temple with the two parts of the story of the fig tree. On the way to clearing the temple, Jesus curses the, the fig tree. On the way, the, the next day, Peter points out that the fig tree has withered. So the, the, uh, in terms of the text, the temple, the clearing of the temple story is framed by the two parts, is bookended by the two parts of the fig tree story. The key thing to understand here, once again, it's about the Old Testament. 
frequently throughout the Old Testament, a fig tree bearing figs is used as a metaphor for Israel bearing fr being fruitful. Israel doing what it was designed to do and bearing the fruit that it was designed to bear. Um, for example, Isaiah, twice in Jeremiah, twice in Hosea, Joel, Micah. So all through the Old Testament prophets, fig trees are used as a metaphor for Israel and Israel's fruitfulness. But look at this in Jeremiah chapter 8. This is one of these examples. But here it's linked to God's judgment. Um, in Jeremiah 8, Jeremiah says, I will take away their harvest, declares the Lord. There will be no grapes on the vine. There will be no figs on the tree and their leaves will wither. Is Jeremiah talking about figs here? No, he's talking about Israel. Because look at the reference. This is Jeremiah 8. The previous quote from Jeremiah, where was that from? That was Jeremiah 7. In fact, if you look at Jeremiah, they're part of the same passage. So the very same passage that that Jeremiah, the, the den of robbers quote was taken from, goes on to talk about fig trees. But actually what it's talking about is God's judgment on a fig tree that isn't bearing fruit and the tree actually withering um, as a metaphor for God's judgment on Israel. And so what does Mark do? Mark frames a story about God's judgment of Israel and the temple for not doing what it was supposed to be doing with this story of a fig tree being cursed and dying and withering. Um, again, do you see the pattern? What Mark is doing is he's just underlining the point is reinforcing the point that what Jesus is doing in the temple is announcing God's judgment for Israel's lack of fruitfulness. But we need Old Testament eyes to see it. Um, final uh, bit of evidence, uh, piece of evidence number five. What is Jesus doing in clearing the temple? Well, Mark tells us. Again, if we look at the passage, um, did you notice this as I read it out? Um, Mark says in verse 17, and as he taught them, he said, it is not written, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. So while he was teaching them, he said these words. So what's he doing that amounts to the teaching? What he's doing is he's overturning the tables. He's interrupting the trade of the, the money changers. What, what his actions are doing is they are a lesson. He is teaching them through actions rather than through words. But as he does it, he makes these two Old Testament quotes. Um, Jesus is a prophet. Jesus stands in the, the traditions of Old Testament prophets. In fact, Jesus is the greatest prophet in the Bible. And Old Testament prophets had a habit from time to time of enacting their messages, of acting out. Uh, when they really wanted to underline something or reinforce something, they would act out their message. For example, uh, if you look at Isaiah chapter 20, Isaiah goes around naked for three years. It wasn't an easy gig being an Old Testament prophet. 
Um, Hosea marries a prostitute to highlight a message about Israel's unfaithfulness to God. Um, Jeremiah, Jeremiah uh, 19, buys a clay jar and smashes it as a way of announcing the way that God's judgment will smash Israel. Um, so Old Testament prophets, from time to time, they would not just use words to communicate God's word, but they would act it out, particularly when they wanted to underline something important. What Jesus do, is doing here, I think, and I think this is what Mark is saying, is he is simply being a prophet in the line of Old Testament prophets. He's enacting his teaching. He's deliberately doing something violent in order to announce in a way that hopefully will draw attention and that his hearers can't miss, to draw attention to the fact that something violent is going to happen to the temple, as indeed it does 40 years later. Um, that is what Jesus is doing. Um, because we don't understand it, because we don't uh, excavate the, the meaning, we read into the passage all sorts of different interpretations um, to support our own cases. But I think, hopefully, having looked at these five different bits of evidence and assembled them together into a picture, you can see what Jesus was doing. So why? Why was it significant? Why was it important? Um, can we draw some conclusions? I think it boils down to this. What was Israel for? The whole thing, the whole plan. What was the purpose of Israel from the start? Why did God choose Abraham and declare to Abraham that he was going to be the father of a great nation? Why did God rescue um, Abraham's family from slavery in Egypt? Why did he promise them a land? Why did he give them a land? Why did he give them the law? Why did he teach them? Why, why all of it? Why the temple, the priests, the sacrifices, the kings and prophets? What was it all for? What was the point? Um, a key theme right throughout the, the Old Testament is the nations are watching. The nations are watching. Um, Israel has the law because it's called to live a different, distinctive life. It's called to, to imitate God in the way that Israel, the nation, lives, the way people behave with each other, the way they treat each other, the way they treat foreigners, uh, the way they uh, look after the land that they've been given. The law was designed to cause um, a, a nation to live differently from all the other nations. Why? So that the other nations would see. So the other nations would notice, it would stand out. So they would take a look, they would get closer. And as they got closer and the, the clearer they saw the life of the nation of Israel, they would be drawn to it, they would find it attractive. Because what they'd be seeing is human life as God intended it to be. Um, so it, it would seem attractive to them. Why? Because they're also created by God. And so what it should look like is life as it's meant to be. 
as, as they saw and experienced the life of Israel, it should have felt to them like coming home. They should have experienced it as beautiful and as right and as good because it's what they were made for as well, because they share the same creator. They share Yahweh as their creator. And so the idea is as they get closer, as they discover this, as it's attractive and beautiful, and as they uh, experience more and more, they begin to experience God for themselves. They begin to realize that the, the reason this nation is different is because of who they worship. They begin to see this person who's invisible, who is causing this nation to be like it is. And so ultimately, the goal of all of that is that the end point of it all is that the Gentiles will come and worship side by side with Israel. That's the finish line. That's the goal of the whole process. That's, that's when it's worked. When Israel is truly fruitful, when it's doing what it's designed to do, then the nations will come and worship Yahweh alongside, shoulder to shoulder. That's the whole point of the whole exercise. Um, so the, 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 the goal is the whole earth worshipping Yahweh, but the process is one of imitation. It's one of joining in. It's Israel's role is to be the model and the example so that the nations watching on can understand and be drawn to join in with Israel for themselves. But Israel is God's advert. Israel is God's argument for human life as it's meant to be. So that and that's why it's so important. That's why Jesus' actions as he's clearing the temple are saying this is significant and this is important. He's basically saying, how could you have got it so wrong? That the, the main goal of Israel, which is to draw the nations to worship Yahweh alongside them, they're doing exactly the opposite of that. They are excluding. They're saying, keep out. How could they have missed the point so completely? And that's why the, the clearing of the temple is such a significant, such an important act in the events of Holy Week. It's announcing God's judgment on Israel as it was. Um, but finally, what about us? I mean, this is a very interesting history lesson and it's quite an interesting biblical studies lesson. Uh, does it, but it's to do with the Jews, it's to do with uh, Israel. Surely it doesn't affect us Christians, does it? Or does it? Um, I would say, I would argue quite strongly that we are still the people of God. Um, but moreover, that the job hasn't changed. We are still the people of God and we are still called to be fruitful in the same way that Israel was called to be fruitful. The job hasn't changed. Uh, let me ask you this. What's the church for? And I don't mean us as individuals, members of the church. I mean together, corporately. As a local community, what are we for? What does bearing fruit look like? 
I'm not talking about the institu the political institution. I'm not talking about Anglicans and Catholics and, and all of that stuff. I'm talking about your local body of Christ, the people of faith who gather together in a hostile world, in your neighborhood, your local church, my local church. I think it's a question that we don't ask nearly enough. Why do we do it? What's it for? All of it, the meetings, the services, the groups, the rotors, the coffees, the teas, uh, the bands, the singers, um, the finances, giving, the accounts, the trustees, everything. What's it all for? Why do we do it? I think Paul is absolutely critical here. Because I think in many ways, church was Paul's idea. <laughs> church was Paul's great innovation. Um, and when Paul talks about the church, what he stresses is continuity. Uh, he takes these little communities that he's planted all around the eastern end of the Mediterranean. And he calls them the new people of God. Um, and I think he implies that they've inherited the same purpose. The, these churches are still the city on the hill, the light to the nations. These little communities are the new Israel. Uh, what names does he use to describe these little communities? He, he uses names like ecclesia, from which we get ecclesiastical. Um, that, that's the most common New Testament word for church. It's also the word the Old Testament uses for the assembled people of God, the ecclesia. If you go back to Deuteronomy, uh, Deuteronomy calls the assembled people of God on the plains just on the um, next to the River Jordan. That is the ecclesia. It's the same word. Why does Paul choose the same word? Because he's saying you're the same people. Just ecloge is another one, the chosen. We have fantastic arguments about predestination because Paul describes us as, a, as <coughs> chosen. And so we have arguments about predestination and free will. And I think we're missing the point. What Paul is saying is Israel was God's chosen. He chose them and you're the inheritors of that title. You're still the chosen people <coughs> of God. I'm just going to pause for a moment because Chris has something in his throat. <laughs> it's all right. Um, Galatians, uh, and right at the end of Galatians, um, Paul, is this, in this argument uh, about circumcision, and he, he, he he's writing to this little church in Galatia, a mixture of Jews and Gentiles, and he says, you are the Israel of God. You are the Israel of God, which is a stunning phrase. What does that mean? He's describing people who don't care about circumcision. And he's saying, you are the Israel of God. Well, he's messing with them. But what he's saying is, you are the kind of Israel that God always wanted. You are the inheritors of this role. You are the new people of God. You're the ones who are going to fulfill this original vision. And if you look at Paul's letters, um, you, you see this so clearly, I think. Most of Paul's letters uh, follow a, a similar pattern. They divide into two halves. It's important when you read Paul's letters to, to understand that they were designed to be read out 
to an assembled church. These are letters to churches. You have to imagine the messenger who's, who's you know, <laughs> ridden a donkey all the way from wherever Paul was at the time to Galatia. And he's arrived at this little local church and he stands up in front of the community and he reads out this message. Uh, when you read you in one of Paul's letters, it's always plural. Um, and the, the, the standard pattern of Paul's letters is it divides into two halves. The first half is always, this is what God has done. It's the gospel. This is what God has done in Jesus and through the Spirit. God has done this and this and this. And then he, he explains all the different ways in which God has achieved stuff and done stuff through Jesus and the Spirit. And it's all about what God has done. The second half is all about how you should respond, little group. You know, community here in Galatia, this is how you should respond to what God has done. And it's always about community ethics. It's how you behave with one another. Next time you read one of Paul's letters, count the one another's, how you live with one another. And you, he talks about loving one another, serving love one another, forgiving one another, living at peace with one another, preferring one another, being generous to one another. Why? Why does the behavior of this community matter so much? And why is it the response to everything that God has done? Because that's what they're called to do. They are still the model. They're still the example. They're the, this little community that lives differently from the rest of the world. And the idea is that the rest of the world will be intrigued. They'll say, why are they different? Like the Romans said, you know, the, why do these people, they, they share their tables, but not their beds? is what the Romans said. And they couldn't understand why they would share their tables but not share their beds. What, why are they so hung up about sexual purity? Why are they so generous with their, with their stuff, with their food? They were intrigued because they were different, and so they wanted to find out more. And that's the people of God doing what the people of God are meant to do. Uh, so that all those around are intrigued, they draw closer, they discover more, and it's seen. It's beautiful because it's also what they were created for. It's life as it should be lived, and so the ultimate goal is they come in and they end up meeting this God for themselves and worshiping alongside the people, alongside God's people, becoming part of God's people. It's still the same pattern. It's still the same plan. Uh, the church doesn't have a mission. The church is God's mission to the world. The primary purpose of the church is to be the church, is to be the Christ-like people of God, the body of Christ, a, a community that demonstrates Christ's character in the way they behave with one another, in the way they love one another. And so I think I've got two, two final conclusions. One of which is, how are we doing? How, if, that's our, if that's what fruitful looks like for a local church, how are we doing? How much is the way we live with one another, our community life, how much of that 
is an example that draws people, that intrigues people and causes them to um, discover God for themselves. But also, do we welcome them as they, as they are drawn close or do we put barriers in their way? Do we put up walls to exclude them or do we demolish the walls in order to make it as easy as possible <laughs> for people outside to come and discover Yahweh for themselves? But my second question is, is a more specific one, is how do we read the New Testament? And are we willing to take the Old Testament seriously within the New Testament? Because as here, I think it's often the key. It's often the, the key that will make sense of the trickiest passages. And I think that's, I'm gonna say any questions, uh, but maybe if, if you see this podcast, and I imagine about 13 of you will, um, then please feel free to come and grab me if there's anything that I've said this morning which um, hasn't made sense or which you'd like to know more about, or if you just wanna talk it through further. Um, Thank you for listening.